0: Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure, out loud and comment on it as I go. Now, it's been I it's been it's been a spell. I mean just like a mental spell for me in terms of how I think about Sue Bridehead and how I think about Jude and how I think about this book emotionally. And it was really just a couple paragraphs that did it for me. Because when last we met, Sue was describing her own animalistic, let's say, pagan, druidish personality to Jude. She was just kind of dribbling it out to him in a kind of, uh, well, let's say it obscure way. He came to visit her in Melchester, right? Melchester. And she was saying, you don't, you have no idea how bad I am. You have no idea. He had proposed that they go hang out in the cathedral and she said no that that's that's that that's no that's no fun we should go to the train station that's where the modern people are doing it and then she was saying i'm not even that i'm something else i'm something from another time she's like some uh she's like captain america or something she comes from another time and i think what she means is that she's a perf and she's ashamed of her own perversions And really, all that means is she was rubbing one out to a statue she bought. That's really all it means. But she's killing herself over it. So she has basically accepted Phillotson's proposal, right? And she doesn't love Phillotson, but it's like, you know, whatever. And I think her heart is stirring for Jude, but maybe she feels like she doesn't deserve him because to her, he seems like some kind of holy man which is a funny way of saying holy man. You know, he just seems so good and pure to her, even though yeah, he got drunk that one time. But she feels like, oh, "I can't. I mean, he's my cousin and, you know, he's too good for me and I've got philistin and I'm this un-unpure masturbating pagan. Who am I? Who am I to be with Jude?" And but she at the same time she's leaving the door open to something happening. Now, from Jude's point of view, it's agony. From his point of view, She's saying, I'm I'm going to be with Phillotson in two years, we're going to get married once I finish my my uh, degree here, but who knows what's going to happen? Well, I know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't, I haven't read the book, but they're going to hook up. I mean, let's just, we've known this from moment one, they're going to hook up and it's going to get bad. Like we just know that, but we don't know what course it's going to take. So the last thing she said is, uh, you don't know how bad I am. Or you wouldn't think so much of me or care whether I was engaged or not. Now there's just time for us to walk round the close. Then I must go in or I shall be locked out for the night. Okay, so he's about to take her home. He took her to the gate and they parted. Jude had a conviction that his unhappy visit to her on that sad night had precipitated this marriage engagement. Oh, so Jude is saying the time that he visited her, right, when he was all stumbly and drunk and whatever, that that had actually led to them getting married or getting engaged. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that follows, but, uh, and it did anything but add to his happiness, Her reproach had taken that shape then, and not the shape of words. However, next day, he set about seeking employment, which was not so easy to get, as at Christminster there being, as a rule, less stone-cutting in progress in this quiet city, and hands being mostly permanent. But he edged himself in by degrees." His first work was some carving at the cemetery on the hill. And ultimately he became engaged on the labor he most desired: the cathedral repairs. Yes, 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 yes. That's all Jude is trying to do, ultimately, right? Repair the fucking cathedral. It is the cathedral of eternity. It is his soul itself, he is trying to repair. And the cathedral repairs, comma, which were very extensive. Yes, 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 we get it. The whole interior, yes, stonework having been overhauled to be largely replaced by new. And that is the work of Jude's life. That is the stonemason of Jude the Obscure, of working on the interior of the cathedral. Desperately working, carving, chiseling, working with these hard materials to make something gorgeous and new something unmarred something clean but it cannot be done it might be a labor of years to get it all done and he had confidence enough in his own skill with the mallet and chisel to feel that it would be a matter of choice with himself how long he would stay the lodgings he took near the close gate would not have disgraced a curate the rent representing a higher percentage on his wages than mechanics of any sort usually care to pay. His combined bed and sitting room was finished with framed photographs of the rectories and deaneries at which his landlady had lived as trusted servant in her time, and the parlor downstairs bore a clock On the mantelpiece inscribed to the effect that it was presented to the same serious-minded woman by her fellow servants on the occasion of her marriage. Jude added to the furniture of his room by unpacking photographs of the ecclesiastical carvings and monuments that he had executed with his own hands, and he was deemed a satisfactory acquisition as tenant of the vacant apartment. He found an ample supply of theological books in the city bookshops, and with these, his studies were recommenced in a different spirit and direction from his former course. As a relaxation from the fathers and such stock works as Paley and Butler, he read Newman, Pusey, and many other modern lights. He hired a harmonium, set it up in his lodging, and practiced chants thereon, single and double. Well, Jude has seemed to have found a fair measure of peace there in Melchester. He's taken rooms, more uh, permanent rooms than he is used to, little sitting room there, a little, uh, a little ottoman, a little TV that he can watch SNL on every Saturday night and take his whiskey and his cigars. Maybe he carves little ships and puts them in bottles. He's a scholar. He's, uh, he's a gentleman scholar the way uh, there are gentleman farmers, right? He's got the farm, but he doesn't really grow anything. And that's what he's like with academia. You know, he's not, he's not a professional academic. He does it out of love. Uh, And it sounds rather nice. And he's got photographs of buildings, those of his landlady, those he's worked on. And there's a kind of serenity at work here. It won't last, of course. And that was the end of the first chapter at Melchester. Now, let us travel to the second one and see how everything gets destroyed. But first, a word from our sponsors. Why, hello there. I'm still here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and we just finished at Melchester, Chapter One. About to head on to Chapter Two. Tomorrow is our grand day, you know. Where shall we go? I have leave from three till nine, wherever we can get to, and come back from in that time. Not ruins, Jude. I don't care for them. Well, warder castle and then we can do font hill if we like all in the same afternoon warder is gothic ruins and i hate gothic no quite otherwise it is a classic building corinthian i think with a lot of pictures ah that will do i like the sound of corinthian we will go oh god these boars which old building should we look my wife does this all the time uh, martha you know martha she wants every city we go to, she wants to go to old houses. And I always dread it. I'm always like, oh, I don't want to go see the goddamn old house. Then we go to the old house and it's always fascinating. You know, we go around, we tour and we look at, uh, you know, the furnishings they had and the things they had on the walls and the, and you know, the little bidets that they would use and all this stuff. And you go, oh, uh, well, that's, that's just lovely, but I always dread it. Their conversation had run thus some few weeks later and next morning they prepared to start every detail of the outing was a facet reflecting a sparkle to jude and he did not venture to meditate on the life of inconsistency he was leading his sue's conduct was one lovely conundrum to him he could say no more oh dear So I'm looking at it through a modern lens. I'm looking at as well. He's just going out with his cousin to look at old buildings. What's what I read nothing into that. But to Jude, he is sensing her conundrum. Her conundrum is, of course, Phillotson or him. Uh, I didn't realize that was still at play based on the end of the last chapter where he seems to have found a certain amount of contentedness. Right. Well, apparently it's still at play. There duly came the charm of calling at the college door for her, her emergence in a nun-like simplicity of costume that was rather enforced than desired, the traipsing along to the station, the porter's bear leave, the screaming of the trains, everything formed the basis of a beautiful crystallization." Nobody stared at Sue because she was so plainly dressed, which com- comforted Jude in the thought that only himself knew the charms those habiliments subdued. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, right. She's she's wearing basically just, a you know, a, a simple nun like frock. But Jude knows. The charms, those habiliments are subduing, those bosomy charms that are straining underneath, heaving and straining and probably glistening in the sun. A matter of 10 pounds spent in a drapery shop, which had no connection with her real life or her real self would have set all Melchester staring. I thought that earlier in the book, uh, Hardy had said that uh, Sue was actually not that hot. I mean, I, I don't. I hate to put it so crudely, but I will. He, I thought he said like you know she was she was good looking, but not nothing extraordinary. But now maybe it's because we're looking at it through Jude's eyes here. Uh, but she is just like the hottest apparently all of Melchester would be staring if she just spent 10 pounds, right? Just put on a little something, something shook that moneymaker, all Melchester would be agog. The guard of the train thought they were lovers and put them into a compartment all by themselves. Well, that's a good intention wasted, said she. Jude did not respond. He thought the remark unnecessarily cruel and partly untrue. They reached i i'm I'm humping a little bit because Jude is acknowledging no there's something going on here, and Sue is pretending again not to acknowledge that you know what there's something going on here, you know those little train compartments, their thighs brushing against each other, maybe they're reading newspapers, and the the edges of the newspapers touch as they're going across the countryside and 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 it's like the newspapers have nerves in them, nerves extending all the way down the front pages, and when they rustle together, it's like there's a charge shooting back through the nerves of the newspaper into their own fingers. I'm getting carried away with my own erotica here. They reached the park and castle and wandered through the picture galleries, Jude stopping by preference in front at the devotional pictures of Del Sarto, Guido Reni, spagnoletto sassaforetto <laughs> carlo Dolci, and others <laughs> i don't give a shit who <laughs> painted you know what thomas hardy you could just say the devotional paintings or the like religious paintings or whatever i don't need to know their names sue paused patiently beside him right because she doesn't she doesn't think of herself this way she's not devotional and stole critical looks into his face as, regarding the virgins, holy families, and saints, it grew reverent and abstracted. When she had thoroughly estimated him at this, she would move on and wait for him before Alelie or Reynolds. It was evident that her cousin deeply interested her as one might be interested in a man puzzling out his way along a labyrinth from which one had one's self escaped oh shizzle Oh, snap, crackle pop. So Hardy's saying, like, she's like giving him a little bit of leash. And she's saying, hey, man, I get it. Like, you're still enraptured, you're still entranced with this Christian shit, but I have come out the other side not into something more modern, but into something else, a different kind of plane. I have found myself alone in the ether, and I'm just looking for a companion, and I see in you somebody going through the same struggles that I have gone through, and maybe you will come out the other side, and maybe you will not, but if you do, I'm right here, dude. I'm right here with my charms under my habiliments. When they came out, a long time still remained to them. And Jude proposed that as, so wait, I'm just going back for a second. So when she's saying that's a good intention wasted, said she, it's not because what I thought, which is basically Sue's too much of a prude. No, in a sense, she's saying he's too much of a prude. If he would move through that little filament separating them into her world. If he could just pass through that membrane, and uh, maybe the word membrane was too pervy. If he would just pass through, right? She's right there. But the intention is wasted because he hasn't done that yet. She's waiting for him, basically. And now I'm falling in love with Sue. Because Sue, I feel like, is kind of where, not where I am exactly, not personally, but like I have that feeling sometimes. I feel like everybody has that feeling where they're looking at the world critically and they're looking at the devotional world and they're looking at the modern world and they're going, I know I'm supposed to fit in here somewhere, but I don't. I don't fit in either of these two places. And it's not that Sue's saying she's better. She's saying she's worse than everybody else. But secretly, she thinks she's better. When they came out, a long time still remained to them, and Jude proposed that as soon as they had had something to eat, they should walk across the high country to the north of their present position and intercept the train of another railway leading back to Melchester at a station about seven miles off. Sue, who was inclined for any adventure that would intensify the sense of her day's freedom, readily agreed. Yeah, we know. I mean, we know she wants to intensify all senses. She's a hedonist. She's a sensualist. And away they went, leaving the adjoining station behind them. It was indeed open country, wide and high. They talked and bounded on, Jude cutting from a little covert a long walking stick for Sue as tall as herself with a great crook, which made her look like a shepherdess, About halfway on their journey, they crossed a main road running due east and west, the old road from London to Land's End. They paused and looked up and down it for a moment and remarked upon the desolation which had come over this once lively thoroughfare. And then there's a little footnote, so I'll go to that. That's... Uh, Twenty-five. The coming of the railways resulted in a great reduction of traffic on the main roads, a state of affairs cured by the invention of the internal combustion engine. The point is relevant also to the early part of chapter five of part fifth. Well, that that's still a ways away. But again, this is what we're talking about, how everything's changing. London to land's end. Everything is changing. And there's a desolation here. There is a sense of the entirety of the country being overturned and being replaced by something they do not yet know what. They remarked upon it while the wind dipped to earth and scooped straws and hay stems from the ground. Let's take a quick break. This is Obscure. This holiday season, Earwolf wants to spread some cheer. Cheerwolf. If you will, we've got special episodes all over the network just for you. Andrew T. and Tawny Newsom talk to Kulap Vilaysack about holiday racism. On Yo, is this racist? On Unspooled, take a deep dive into AFI's favorite Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Off book has not one, not two, but Chwa, holiday-themed musicals for you to indulge in. Surprise. All the special holiday episodes of With Special Guest are out from behind the paywall as a gift to you. Check out a very special Improv for Humans episode, Best of the Bible on Are You Talking R E M R E Me? The Scots talk about R.E.M., every R.E.M. holiday single released, and nothing else. Sean and Hayes hit the slopes with Adam Paley on a very festive episode of Hollywood Handbook. On Beautiful Anonymous, Chris Gethard is taking calls for New Year's resolutions from you. Tune in on Earwolf's Facebook page, December 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern. Marissa and Lister get a special listener call-in with a heartfelt proposal on Womp It Up, followed by the Christmas Wamptacular released from behind the paywall if that's not enough check out even more special holiday eps from comedy bang bang how did this get made getting curious who charted and freedom happy holidays happy listening and a merry cheer wolf to all welcome back to obscure i'm michael ian black now back to the book they crossed the road and passed on but during the next half mile sue seemed to grow tired and jude began to be distressed for her they had walked a good distance all together and if they could not reach the other station it would be rather awkward for a long time there was no cottage visible on the wide expanse of down and turnip land that's a phrase i have not heard but which i like a lot turnip land but presently they came to a sheepfold, and next to the shepherd, pitching hurdles. He told them that the only house near was his mother's and his, pointing to a little dip ahead, from which a faint blue smoke arose, and recommended them to go on and rest there. This they did and entered the house, admitted by an old woman without a single tooth, to whom they were as civil as strangers can be when their only chance of rest and shelter lies in the favor of the householder. A nice little cottage, said Jude. Oh, I don't know about the niceness. I shall have to thatch it soon. And where the thatch is to come from, I can't tell. For straw do get that, dear. Twill soon be cheaper to... (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm cracking myself up with uh, my toothless old woman uh, because I'm trying to cover my teeth as I talk. (laughs) That will soon be cheap. I can't do it. Be cheaper to cover your house with chainy plates than thatch. They said (laughs) I went for an audition yesterday. Um, Okay, so I've been in show business for what a hundred years. And I've had an infinite number of voiceover auditions. And I don't think I've ever booked a single one of them. I'm terrible at doing like voices and character voices and all of that. I can't do it. And yesterday I had a callback for one, which is unusual in and of itself. And I went and uh, it became apparent within about three minutes that I was doing a horrible job And the director of the thing was so nice and so encouraging. And you could just feel all the enthusiasm for them towards me evaporating as I made my stupid voices into the microphone. So that's why I'm so appreciative of this. Nobody can fire me. Nobody can fire me for my terrible voices. They sat resting and the shepherd came in. "'Don't ye mind I,' he said, with a deprecating wave of the hand. "'Bite here as long as ye will.' But mid you be thinking of getting back to Melchester tonight by train because you'll never do it in this world since you don't know the lie of the country. I don't mind going with you some of the ways, but even then the train mid be gone. So here we are. Classic farmer's daughter scenario, right? I mean, Sue dressed as the shepherdess with the crook and they've met the shepherd and his old toothless mother there in the down and it's getting dark and the train is uh, nowhere to be seen. And Jude finds himself out there in the deserted hinterlands, right? A kind of purgatorial space between London and Land's End. And who knows what's going to happen? But there they are, the two of them in a strange house. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? And all kinds of weird stuff could happen. They started up. You can bide here, you know, over the night. can mother? The place is welcome to ye his hard lion rather but Volk may do worse i guess Volk means folk i mean that's a that's a funny thing to say there he turned to jude and asked privately be you a married couple oh no said jude oh i meant nothing but baddie not i well then she can go into mother's room and you and i can lie in the outer shimmer after they're gone through i can call you soon enough to catch the first train back you've lost this one now On consideration, they decided to close with this offer and drew up and shared with the shepherd and his mother the boiled bacon and greens for supper. I rather like this, said Sue, while their entertainers were clearing away the dishes. Outside all laws except gravitation and germination. Oh, shit. I mean, Sue is so horny for Jude. There's the goddamn phone. The goddamn phone phone. Really, if this podcast has an antagonist, it is the goddamn landline that should be the last string. But I mean, it was just getting so hot as Sue was talking about being outside of all laws. That's what I was just talking about only moments ago, except gravitation, that which draws two things together in germination, that most fundamental of all life laws, which is basically just fucking, right? She's basically saying like, we're nowhere, man. Like anything can happen here. We could be drawn together and fuck. She is so horny for Jude and Jude is going to be oblivious or something. Jude is still right there looking at the holy pictures and Sue is outside of it going, dude, wake the fuck up. But he can't. He's still in a kind of reverential dream. And maybe that's better. Maybe it is better to live within the law, the law of culture and community, the law which forbids that which Sue wants. He has no idea, she says, how bad she is. I mean, I was joking before, episodes ago, when she bought those little statues and said, Sue's a perv but Sue is like a full-on perv in the best possible way. I mean, I'm sorry. Jude the Obscure is getting hot. Hot. And we need that now. It's chilly here in the wilds of Connecticut. I mean, I am all a fluster. My loins are aching right now. uh, Hardy has worked me into a tizzy. So I think I should conclude. We're going to leave Jude and Sue bedding down for the night with the toothless old woman and her son the shepherd in that space, that lawless space between London and Land's End where not even trains run. I hope you'll tune in next time. I mean, things are getting so hot and heavy here. Things are just getting ready to explode. Tune in next time to another engorged episode of Obscure. Until then, I bid you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why Did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.